This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Americans have been warned since the late 1970s that the buildup of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere threatens to melt the polar ice sheets and irreversibly change our climate. With little done since then to alter this course, now is the moment to salvage our future. In her new book, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature, and Climate Change, Elizabeth Colbert lets the facts tell the story about our environment and asks what, if anything, can be done to save it. She traveled from Alaska to Greenland and visited top scientists to get to the heart of the debate over global warming. Colbert has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1999 and received the American Association for the Advancement of Science's Writing Award for the series on which Field Notes for a Catastrophe is based. Elizabeth Colbert, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Uh, pretty well, thanks. Is the weather in Massachusetts nice? Uh, it actually is nice today. Yeah. It's sort of a, a nice spring day out here. Very good. Did, how did you uh, celebrate the Earth Day weekend? Anything special? <laughs> <laughs> well, I gave a, a, a sort of depressing talk oh, in no. Brooklyn <laughs> that night. How's that? Yeah. Uh, imagine you have had to give a few of those of exactly. late. Exactly. It, this weekend here in Los Angeles, uh, columnist Jonah Goldberg argued that global warming may not even exist and said that uh, we don't have a clear picture of what's happening now, never mind what will happen. He, I think he called it uh, millenarian baddiness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you say to people like that? Well, it's just, you know, absurd. You absolutely never hear that from anyone who's ever done any, you know, actual uh, in scientific research into the topic, you only hear it, you know, from people like Jonah Goldberg. And, you know, people, <laughs> I suppose it's a free country, and people can choose to believe that. Unfortunately, it just doesn't change the basic physics of the situation. Do you think it's just a matter of, of uh, economics for them, or is it uh, or is it a fear for them? I'm just going off topic yeah, a little bit here. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that, you know, people have sort of, decided to cast global warming as a political debate when it really has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with, you know, geophysics and how um, the atmosphere functions and how, you know, basic sort of uh, principles of, 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 of what's called radiative physics. And, you know, I would not want to be too, um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to be too harsh, but I, I, I wonder if, if, if Jonah Goldberg even understands that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you and I mean I don't know what where I know a little bit about Jonah Goldberg. I know he's he's uh, sort of a, a weekly standard. Uh, uh, he used to write for them, and I, I is is the right the right seems to be the, the the last bastion of people holding out that in the hopes that this is uh, is not real science that this is somehow junk science. Uh, but the, the numbers seem to be dwindling, don't they? I mean, we're, we're talking about yes. relatively few people who actually... Uh, we're, we're talking about, you know, virtually no one in the uh, sort of, you know, mainstream, credible scientific community, uh, even in, you know, the halls of Congress, <laughs> where yeah. science doesn't seem to play much of a role these days. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a dwindling number of, of, of people. And I, I do want to say in terms of ideology, you know, 
unfortunately, it, it is a, it, to the extent that there's you know debate, and I hesitate to you know sort yeah. of glorify it with the word debate. Yeah. Um, you know the the, the so called skeptics you know do tend to be on the right, but I, I do want to say there are a lot of people on on the on the right politically you know, who are absolutely, you know, convinced of the urgency of the problem. And, and one person I would point to, you know, is one of the front runners for the Republican presidential nomination, and that's John McCain, who's, you know, been out front on this mm-hmm. issue. And I don't think anyone would accuse, you know, John McCain of being, you know, just a lefty sympathizer. Yeah, well, I, I, I guess I guess what I'm saying, I, uh, these uh, you hear about ExxonMobil putting up all this money to sort of debunk a lot of the... Uh, what they say, debunking of the uh, the global warming threat, and and you have to wonder sometimes whether or not some of these people are on the payroll. At oh, this absolutely, point. and I think that there's you know it's 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 a it's a page that's been completely borrowed from you know what Smoking. was done by the tobacco yeah. industry 20 years ago. It's just uh, the strategy is simply you know throw up smoke and say we don't really know. You notice they never present any evidence you know that it's not happening or that there's some flaw in the law and the scientific right. principles, they simply say we just don't know. And that, that just buys time, buys time, as you point out, you know, for people who, who are, are, are attached to sort of, you know, the status, the energy status quo. But it doesn't buy time for the planet. The planet mm-hmm. continues, you know, to do its own thing. Yeah. Uh, we're speaking with Elizabeth Colbert, the author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature, and Climate Change. And, and speaking of buying time, uh, well, there are some scientists right now who are saying we've already reached the point of no concern. No, um, no, no, no return. <laughs> yeah, no concern. All, all That's concern. Good one. Yeah, yeah. No, concern. Well, that no, that, yeah. Could, that could be Exxon's. Uh, the Exxon, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right. the point of no concern. Um, of but, no return. <laughs> no return. <laughs> right. Do you agree with that, you, that we've reached the point of no return? Is there, is there, any, is there any sign that we have? Well, I, I think what people need to understand is what, what happens with, with – Global warming is, you know, you add a certain amount of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere and the planet very slowly responds and reaches a new equilibrium state. And we are not yet in equilibrium um, with regard to the greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere. So in other words, even if we held things the way they are right now, the planet would continue to warm up. Now, when people say we have reached, you know, this sort of threshold, what, what they're talking about is, you know, there's never a point where you could not, you know, stop emitting greenhouse gases and where you would, you know, sl- slow the rate of temperature increase and, or, or, and reduce the eventual temperature increase that you get out at the end of all this. But there are processes, for example, melting the Greenland ice sheet. That's the sort of thing they're talking about. There are processes that you set in motion, and once you start them, it's very difficult, probably impossible to... Um, stop them because there are certain feedbacks involved. So that's what they're talking about when they say, you know, you've crossed that threshold. And no one knows exactly where that threshold is. I think most scientists feel we probably haven't crossed that threshold yet, and at least we certainly have to hope that we haven't yeah, crossed that I, threshold I yet. Think, I think that's the thing. We, we all are kind of, you know, if, if it's true, we don't want to know it, but at this, at the other side of it is it, we've got to be in the mindset that we can reverse this. Otherwise, we're just on this... Uh, increasingly rapidly moving roller coaster that's going to that's going to crash here. Right, it? and another thing that people have to have to realize is, you know, that the the climate until you sort of stabilize CO two concentrations yeah. in the atmosphere, 
the climate doesn't sort of change once and then settle down into a new climate. The climate just keeps on changing. So the imperative, you know, to stabilize CO2 emissions is, is very, very high. Yeah. I remember we have, um, we're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine, and we have a Nobel Prize winning, um, what was Roland Sherwood? Sure, Roland? Sure, sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, he was a... Uh, so for those who don't know, he won the Nobel Prize for his discovery. Chlorofluorocarbons. Yeah, chlorofluorocarbons and their effect on the ozone layer. Right. And, and I remember years ago, I mean, this is at least 10, 12, maybe longer, 15 years ago, talking about the fact that what's in the atmosphere was were things that were emitted decades ago. And as they percolate up in through the, up through the atmosphere, you will begin to see the impact and the effects. And what frightened me about that idea was that as he was describing, we were talking about things that had happened at that time 20, 30 years ago when the industrial the industrial world was really just beginning to pour a lot of these materials into the atmosphere. And we weren't going to see the effects for many decades or a few decades to come. So in the meantime, we've obviously poured much more of that toxic material into the atmosphere. And those are the, th- those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking of that are we're not, like I think you're describing. We're going to see the effects for many, many years to come. Right, although I, do, I should say that a hopeful story and a story that I think gives, gives some people hope, you know, that we could um, grapple yeah. with, with global warming is the story of chlorofluorocarbons because there is an international treaty. The work of people like Sherry Rowan, you know, really alerted the world to this, you know, potentially catastrophic, it's impossible to exaggerate, you know, how bad that could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The world, you know, got together. There's something called the Montreal Protocol, uh, which was signed in 1987. It was a UN treaty, and it, it banned, you know, basically banned the production of chlorofluorocarbons. Now it's, and then it gave the sort of developing world um, more time. So first it was the developed world, like mm-hmm. us, and then the developing world. And while CFCs continue to be a problem because, you know, they're still clanking around out there, as you say, they, they last a tremendously long time in the atmosphere. Uh, basically, you know, we have met that problem, mm-hmm. and eventually, uh, you know, it's atmospheric ozone that we're talking about, which blocks ultraviolet radiation. That ozone layer will recover now, it no. is believed. Okay. So that is a hopeful story. That shows what can be done, you know, when human beings put their minds to it. Can I, can I just throw in a plug for Irvine? And, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. And say that Irvine, the, uh, the mayor uh, uh, at the time, Larry Agron, was was responsible for getting a ban within the city limits. Yeah, and we were before at, anything else before uh, one went the, down the, the Yeah, uh, one of the first in protocol. protocols. And, uh, in fact, at the time, because of the um, high-tech industry in, in the city of Irvine, we were producing something like 1% of all the um, ozone-depleting compounds. Um, I wouldn't want to say, Mike. That's <laughs> so, really? what he was saying. So, yeah. so I mean – it can happen locally. I guess my point is, it happens organically. You you start uh, you know at this one place and you, and you begin to build out, and that's a great story, obviously yeah. for for the world. So. Well, what's what's remarkable about your book is is that it's it, you go to the places where climate change is is already happening. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, say the west coast of Greenland. Sure. Yeah, I went to this remarkable um, town. Uh, on the west coast of Greenland, called Lulisat, and it's just a spectacularly beautiful place. And what happens there is that um, these huge icebergs are discharged from this ice river, basically, and it's, it, probably this ice river was the source of the iceberg that sunk the Titanic. And yeah. um, what has happened in recent years, scientists have, have found, and, and locals will tell you, you know, the icebergs have gotten smaller and they break up 
more easily. Um, and the sea ice is changing. The sea ice doesn't come in the way it used to. So they're seeing just tremendous changes up there. And that has, um, in the case of Greenland, has tremendous implications for sea level rise because yeah. Greenland contains enough water in the uh, Greenland ice sheet to uh, raise global sea levels by about 16 feet. And that is why when you read all these pieces that say, you know, the flow of the Greenland ice streams is speeding up, that's why you got to be worried. Yeah. What kind mm-hmm. of impact would that have, say, if if uh, the, the ice sheets really did catastrophically melt down? Is there any kind of predictions I'm out sure there? I'm sure they've done maps. Yeah. I'm sure they've done computer-generated yeah, maps. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's yeah. a 16-feet global sea level rise once you melt down the whole uh-huh. ice sheet. Now, it doesn't just sort of, you know, disappear like in a day, but it goes back to what we were talking about before. Are there certain thresholds that you cross after which... You know, you've basically set in motion a process that you can't stop, and yeah. that's what people are worried about. Well, I mean, I, I you know, I guess Florida, and I mean, there's so many countries that have essentially disappear if there were something like that to happen. I also heard, and help me out on this, is that as the 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 ice recedes, as the ice sheet recedes, then you begin to release carbon monoxide into the atmosphere, and that can also expedite or speed up. Hmm. Uh, this is what, oh, okay. Well, I don't. Um, all right. Yeah, that's what I say. <laughs> no. Well, I was told. On that one. I was told. I, I was. Say it's not puzzle, but it doesn't. It doesn't strike me as. Uh, it's, it's not something I've heard about. Well, because of the, yeah. the vegetation. I, I would, think that's would be. millenarian. Oh, that, that what you're talking about, I think, is is, is thawing permafrost. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Sorry. That is a huge deal, actually, there. and that's another place that I went up to the north slope of Alaska, oh, where so. a lot of the permafrost and permafrost is simply dirt that is frozen. It's, that's all it is. Right. Um, and a lot of the world has is permafrost. You know, not where people tend to live, but a lot of it up north is permafrost. Mm-hmm. And what happens there is that um, plants, you know, they take up CO two when they are alive, and then when they die, they decompose, and that carbon goes back into the air and but if it's very, very cold, like up in the Arctic, then the plants sort of just get pushed down into this permafrost, and they sort of stay there, and they're sort of suspended. So the carbon never gets released back into the atmosphere. So permafrost is what's called a carbon sink. It just is taking that carbon and basically sequestering it from the air. Okay. And if you heat it up, then that, that you know decomposition process starts again, and you release that carbon to the air. So you're taking carbon that was taken out, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, and you're just releasing it sort of all at once. And that's a real worry. Yeah, and that and that would be, I, I was described as just millions and millions of cubic tonnage of, of this stuff and being released would have a dramatic impact on the on the environment. And Absolutely. And that, that's another example of this feedback process that you get with climate change. It's just, you know, you, you start changing the temperature a little bit, and you get a lot of these sort of, you know, side effects that can have even more effect uh, than the original temperature increase. We're, we're speaking with Elizabeth Colbert, and she is the author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature, and Climate Change. Oh, what's your take on uh, on George Bush? <laughs> what, what about... <laughs> well, I was, I, was, I was, you know, I was thinking about... That's a loaded question. Yeah. Uh, no. I thought I'd just make it simple <laughs> yeah. instead of prefacing. Well, he's our president. Yeah, yeah. there you go. There you That's, go. There's okay, an answer for you. <laughs> Yeah. Now, what are the politics of this, and how's the Bush administration doing? I think we know the answer, but why don't you, if you could, give us a little rundown. Sure. Well, the Bush administration has done, you know, really pretty badly on this issue. In fact, you, you could argue sort of almost criminally negligent on this issue. And what happened was George Bush ran for president in 2000, and he said, 
I agree that climate change is a serious problem, and I want to regulate CO2. So basically treat it as a pollutant, and we'll put in regulations, and we'll limit the amount of CO2 uh, that you can put into the air. And then as soon as he got elected, yeah. uh, he changed his mind. Huh. And he decided, oh, once again, the science isn't firm enough, blah, blah, blah. And he pulled the U.S. out of the Kyoto Protocol, which was the um, you know, international treaty to limit CO2 emissions. And I should point out, was basically based on, had the same structure as the Montreal Protocol, which ended the use of chlorofluorocarbons, which we were talking about earlier. So it was a treaty that was supposed to you know, move the world forward. And he pulled out of that and decided that really uh, what we should do is just rely on these voluntary measures. And these voluntary measures, you know, just don't, haven't worked. And we all know that, and CO2 emissions in this country are rising. Um, they're rising at, you know, pretty much the same rate they've been rising for a long time. And uh, until we sort of, <clears throat> the U.S., the world's largest CO2 emitter, you know, shows some kind of commitment that we're going to do something about the problem, it's very, very hard to see how the world is going to grapple with this. You know, actually, those feel like the good old days to me. Back yeah. when when the administration, I remember when that, that was one of the first things that they did was yeah. was yank us yeah. out of the. It almost feels like I'm almost nostalgic for those days, <laughs> because it, because you're talking about criminal negligence, you know, as they continue to sort of feed the oil beast. Calm down now, Mike. And 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 as you see what's going on, that actually. Uh, I mean, that is criminally negligent for us to have pulled out of Kyoto. And he, oh, by the way, I remember President Bush saying at the time one of the most damaging things I've ever heard a U.S. president say, and that was to be in in, in the Kyoto, to be um, following the Kyoto uh, protocols would destroy the U.S. economy. Right, yeah. exactly. That, that's the argument they, they use, and, and, and it's sort of astonishing on two levels. First of all, you know, it, it's simply wrong. I mean, U.S., the, the, the Europeans are moving forward with the Kyoto Protocol, and there's a lot of evidence, you know, especially now with, you know, rising energy prices that, you know, cutting our energy usage would have tremendous economic benefits, actually. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, the second thing is, is sort of when you think about it, you know, the notion that uh, we're just, you know, in it for ourselves. Yeah. You know, we're just this is this is just our ball game, and we're just going to, you know, take our ball and go home. Well, uh, is 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 really pretty? Um, you can imagine how the rest of the world felt. Well, well, it was it was embarrassingly relevatory. In a way. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. 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 And it's been. Re- he's, I should have. He's repeated that line many times. Yeah. He's just sort of proud of it. Yeah. Well, here in California, Governor Schwarzenegger is uh, made it a requirement that. California utilities generate at least 20% of their electricity from renewable resources. And he's, he's got a 33% figure by 2020. If, if Bush took that kind of initiative, do you think that would have a substantial impact? Or what, what would following, say, Schwarzenegger's lead do to a, a national policy? Is that enough? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I should say, I mean, I, I really want to give, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger credit for, for being vocal on this issue and setting those goals. Now, unfortunately, the unfortunate part is, you know, they're just goals. And, um, you know, I don't know if California is on track to meet them at all. Let's just say if the Bush administration set those goals, it would be huge. And if they met them, it would be, you know, spectacular. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 By the way, is this idea of, I know that, I don't even know if it's still in play, the the strategy of of swapping uh, pollution credits uh, between uh, companies. I know that was going to be somewhat of a voluntary program. Is that still something that's even being talked about or being? Are we doing that? 
Um, we are not doing that. The Europeans are doing that. That is part of Kyoto, interestingly <coughs> enough, because the U.S. insisted on that. So if we were to ever join Kyoto or yeah. some international treaty, it would be. But I should say that it is definitely still in play. There are several bills um, in the Senate that would, it's basically called a cap-and-trade system, uh-huh. and it's the same system that we use for a, a you know, a Sulfur dioxide, that's what's helped us curb acid rain. So it's, it's quite, you know, a proven sort of economic strategy, pollution-fighting strategy. And uh, there are many, as I say, several bills around that would impose some kind of a cap and trade system. Do, uh, does it they just, never seem to pass. Yeah. Does, it, does, it, does it really help address the problem, or does it sort of legitimize pollution as a way of life, if you will? Is it, right. Or is it a step? I guess is it, is it a good... Uh, intermediate step towards towards the elimination of these? Well, I think it's absolutely imperative. I mean, yeah. clearly we, you know, and I'm trying to be, a, you know, a, a realist here, we are not eliminating our uh, use of fossil fuels in the, in the, you know, immediate future. So the point is to have a, a cap that is meaningful. If yeah. we had a cap that saying. was low enough, it would uh, really force some radical changes. And then, you know, as you say, you could be hopefully preparing for a time uh, when you could really, really significantly, uh, you know, reduce your CO2 emissions, which is, is what's needed. But, you know, to be perfectly realistic about it, we're, we're a country of, you know, nearly 300 million people, and we're not suddenly, you know, going to stop producing CO2. And I guess the key is, is really to set the cap at a level that makes, that actually has an impact on, on the environment. Not, you can't set a, a cap so high that it doesn't really, we're just trading and it's, it's, it really is having any impact so that, that's the key no, you're exactly right and these rival bills in the senate and you're going to start hearing more and more talk about this there's a bill that john mccain has um which would set a, an actual meaningful cap and okay. then there are these other bills that are rivals that have a much greater chance of passing that set a much much less meaningful cap right, right. <laughs> do you think it's going to take a uh, a global catastrophe to wake people up to this you think we might have already had Is it? Katrina and all yeah. these things, are these the beginning of, of a, a series of global, well, certainly major yeah. catastrophes? Well, I, I think that's a very frightening frightening thought, and I, I actually remember a conversation I had with John McCain who you know, po- po- pointed out the real question is whether our political system is up to an issue like this because we do generally tend to wait until a catastrophic thing happens and then we try to address it. And the problem with climate change as you know, we talked about at the top of the program, is it takes, you know, 30, 40, 50 years for things that you've set in motion to um, yeah. play themselves out through the climate system. So once you've had the catastrophe, it doesn't mean, that, you know, that you can suddenly turn this thing around. There, there's still a lot more in the pipeline. Yeah. So you've got to act proactively, and that, I, I just can't stress that enough. You cannot wait for the catastrophe. Once you wait for the catastrophe, bigger catastrophes are going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with um, Elizabeth Colbert, and her book is Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature, and Climate Change. Um, I'm going to take you back, <laughs> take you back to uh, Star Trek. Uh-oh, yeah, okay. okay. Uh-oh. And, uh, we're not Trekkies. You no, know, we're not Trekkies. Okay. Trust me on that. We, this is not one of those, uh, you know, yeah. remember when, you know. So, you know. But, uh, <laughs> remember when Uhuru. Yeah, yeah, remember that episode yeah. where, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, by the way, he always said sex with the green girls. But anyway, that that was uh, all right. Stop it, Mike. All right. So, uh, no the uh, the the idea of the and uh, one of those films where they shot something into a planet and it turned it green. They had some sort of magic bullet that they were able to essentially 
imposed nature on, uh-huh. on a barren planet. Okay. Are, do we have, is there any, I mean, besides ob- the obvious things we have to do, a reduction in the amounts of pollution that we have, is, is there something that we can proactively do in terms of planting more trees, more vegetation, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that will help bolster the immune system of the planet? Right. Well, um, you know, planting trees is, 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 is good. It's not a sort of, you know, long-term, you know, solution because eventually those trees sort of reach a new equilibrium. But, but growing forests yeah. um, are, you know, very uh, good way to, to sequester carbon from the absorb, sort of absorb the carbon that we're emitting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, any, so go, everyone should go plant a tree, absolutely. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is we either have to, you know, use less energy or we have to use different sources of energy. Now, California has a big initiative to install solar, for example. Solar, right. you know, you can use all the solar energy you want and you will not contribute to global warming. Right. So those are, I mean, there's that beyond that, I mean, there's is there anything proactive that we can do? Um, what you're saying, I guess, is... There's there's not a lot. I mean, people you know people have these sort of engineering solutions that that they're talking about. You know, sort of the moral equivalent of you know shooting a bullet at a planet and making it green. Some people, for example, want to take the CO2 from power plants and and sort of inject it underground so that it it never you know gets into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and that is not impossible. I don't I don't want to scoff at that, but it's expensive. And so so right now it's not being done, but it's it's potentially a, a viable technology. Well, on that happy note, and we're, we're, uh, I'm going to uh, thank you very, very much for yeah, being I want to thank you for writing the book, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if there's anything, you talk about proactive, I think writing this book was proactive. Yeah. Oh, I think it well, bro- thank you. Yeah. I, I'm trying. Very so, good. Thank well, you. Yes, getting information out, getting uh, so that more people understand just the, the gravity of the situation. Uh, Elizabeth Colbert, uh, author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe, thank you very much for being on Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals. <laughs>